Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Sarah from New Society Publishers. At New Society, we are committed to ensuring that the health and diversity of the environment is conserved for the benefit of future generations. Find out more about how we put people and planet first at newsociety.com or on any of your favorite social media channels. Chelsea Green Publishing, an employee-owned company, is recognized as a leader in content about regenerative agriculture, organic farming, homesteading, local food, restorative living, and diet-focused integrative health. Publishing expert authors that bring in-depth, practical knowledge to life with books, ebooks, and audiobooks. Go to chelseagreen.com and enter the code EDGE30, that's capital E-D-G-E 30, at checkout to receive a special discount on your next print book purchase. And be sure to sign up for their newsletter and stay up to date on new releases and audiobooks. Chelsea Green Publishing, cultivating change from the ground up. In this session, I had the pleasure of speaking to the founder of Elemental Ecosystems, Zach Weiss. Now, Zach earned the distinction of being the first person to earn the Holzer Practitioner Certification from revolutionary Austrian farmer Sepp Holzer through a rigorous two-year apprenticeship working alongside SEP in North America and Europe. Zach created Elemental Ecosystems as a for-benefit social enterprise focused on solving society's growing environmental problems by considering the elemental relationship between biology and hydrology. In this interview, Zach and I start by talking about the difference between a healthy water cycle and one that's been compromised. We unpack the reasons why humans have desertified nearly one-third of the Earth's land and how we can begin to reverse and regenerate that process. Zach also touches on some of the steps that anyone can take, whether you live on a large farm or a small city apartment, to positively impact the water cycles in your local area, and he also shares many resources that you can look into to learn more about watershed regeneration. This interview represents just the tip of the iceberg around water system regeneration, and I would love to do a follow-up interview with Zach very soon. So, to those of you listening to this, please write to me at info at and send in the topics and questions you'd like for us to explore in greater depth when I get the chance to continue this series again. Now I'll turn things over to Zach. Hey, Zachary, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. How are you doing, man? It's just after the holidays. I'm doing I'm doing excellent. Thanks so much for having me on, Oliver. I'm really excited to talk about all this stuff. Hey, it's my pleasure. Ever since uh, Cassie, our mutual friend, put us in contact, I've been really excited to talk to you about the work that you do. So um, why do you say we just jump right into the questions? Yeah, that sounds excellent. All right. So could you start by telling our listeners a little bit about your personal background and how you got started with your interest in especially waterway regeneration? And I also know that you studied for a little while with a hero in the permaculture world, Sepp Holzer. So if you give us a little uh, kind of lineage of how that happened. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I've been working with Sepp for six years now, almost going on seven. Um, and, you know, my story is I really was someone who always looked first to nature for answers. And I remember thinking even at an early age that nature really was truth. 
So I went down a meandering path, was interested in behavioral ecology and ecology and ecosystems, um, and eventually came across a greenhouse where they had this platform of perpetual soils. And that gave me this soils background. And then in 2012, I got to go to a workshop that was a large project with Sepulcher. 60 people attended for a large project in Montana. And basically, I just worked my tail off the whole project, sun up to sun down. I always tell people, if you want to impress a farmer, just work harder than everyone else. Um, yeah, that's and true. And so I did that and <laughs> proceeded to do that for a series of years. And now we have this great relationship where... And, you know, he has just totally opened my eyes to everything that I dreamed about doing as a kid. I didn't really have anyone to teach me the how or the nuts and bolts basics. And he really provided that uh, in more ways than I could have imagined. And so I have this huge amount of gratitude for him as well. Fantastic. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you did with him and some of the revelations or, or learning experiences that really helped to propel you to where you are now? Yeah, and I'd say every project still that I do with SEP, I learn a great deal because there's so much involved. It's The easiest part of this is actually the ecosystem side. And so this is a process of really unwinding the mind and learning how to read ecosystems, read living beings. They're all speaking. They're not speaking English, but they're communicating all the time with everything in the web of life. And so how do you start to read that and then start to creatively plan and interact with that force? Um, but then there's also a huge amount of work that needs to be done on the government policy side, convincing people that this work should be done. And I'd say SEP has taught me just as much about interacting with the human world as the natural world. Marvelous. Yeah, I mean, that's often where a lot of this gets caught up uh, is when it comes to policy implementation and, you know, getting governing bodies to you know, sometimes it's not even as far as support, but just not <laughs> get in the way or to stop progress. Oh, exactly. And this project in Montana, my first project with SEP is a great example of that. It was on a reservation. And so we were able to get permission to work with the water from the tribes, uh, from the tribal council that controls the water in the reservation. If that project was in the United States, not on reservation land, everything that we would did would have been entirely illegal. She would have been facing millions of dollars in fines. And this is what the work that we did so that people understand was restore a wetland that had an airstrip built in the middle of it. Oh, wow. And we restored it into this place where now there's turtles breeding, there's waterfowl. You can see tracks from every type of wildlife in Montana. Um, and this is illegal. This would be fined heavily and she'd have to turn it back to the way it was because of the way the human management systems are right now. That's incredible. All right, so here, let's take a step back uh, to get everyone oriented to the ideas that you're promoting here. Can you talk a little bit about what a healthy water cycle looks like in nature and how it can become compromised with the sort of downstream effects of de desertification? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a healthy water cycle, nature works in symbiosis, in relation, which with all of the different elements playing a role within a dynamic system. And so a healthy water cycle 
For example, the trees are, for one, they're respiring water, which cools the air, which draws in more cool air, being low pressure air that's carrying humidity. Um, and then the trees are actually respiring or they're breeding hygroscopic bacteria in the stomatal cavities, releasing those into the atmosphere and actually seeding the water vapor into clouds and then rain. And so on a continental scale, the forests are actually pulling moisture from the ocean inland. That water's entering the cool shaded ground, and then it's feeding the different reservoirs, rivers, creeks. You get this consistent balanced climate and consistent steady water availability. And so then looking into how that can be compromised when you have bare open land on the hot soil, the water can't infiltrate. And so when the rain events do happen, all of that rain runs downhill, causing flooding, but then followed by drought because it's not infiltrating the way it used to within a forest landscape. So now springs are going dry, creeks are getting low and hot, the aquatic life is all stressed, and you have all of these heat bodies rising off of the bare exposed earth, like in a city, for example. And so that high pressure air is actually preventing the low pressure humidity from even entering into the continents. So you look at a place like Australia, used to have a giant freshwater lake in its center in this monsoonal rainy season and was a lush green continent like South America is. Um, but through basically human alteration of the landscape, it is what it is today, where you have this high pressure rising heat body that prevents any of the moisture coming off of the ocean from entering into the continent. Yeah, that's super daunting, especially because it's taken over such massive tracts of land that the idea of altering those positively seems like a very insurmountable task, um, especially to do anything on the scale that we're talking about that can actually have an effect on the, the microclimate of a space. So mm -hmm. let's talk about some of the practical ways, especially through your own examples and work of how we can start to regenerate waterways and reverse desertification on a really large scale. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so the first step is to really store the seasonal rains. Even in a desert, when it rains, it floods. And all of that water is moving to select points within the earth. And so how do you create water retention landscapes with the earthen materials using the clay and the watertight materials in the earth to strategically hold that water so that you're collecting and holding it through the dry times, which then gives you the water to reestablish forest systems. Now, as the forest shade is recovered, the soil actually absorbs the falling rain when it enters, and you very quickly get a whole different type of cycle. Um, and you spoke about there's these daunting areas, but we really have to work with the leading edges because it creates a downwind effect. So for example, one of the really great projects, Willie Smith's work in Borneo, where they've measured a 10% increase in rainfall from their work, but that increase is not just for them, but also for the areas downwind of them, because the trees are seeding that moisture. And so once you get the pump starting to work, it very quickly feeds itself. And this is how you get these massive transformations in landscapes. Um, another good example would be in Portugal, a project that septed that where I've visited and it's incredible. They really created a 
water sustainable community. Are you talking about the Tamara is... village there? Yeah, exactly. Oh, I followed that one exactly. closely. It's been so inspiring to see how that's changed. The lake that was put in there. Actually, that's something I want to talk about a little bit later, but go ahead. Yeah, it, well, exactly. And it's a community that didn't have enough water, and now they have a surplus of water. And it's it's not the climate that's the problem. It's the human management. Because we always are getting rain at some point. Even in the most barren deserts on Earth, they get rain. It's about how do we store that water and how do we really rehydrate it into the earth? Yeah, of course. Now, you know, using that project as an example, what were the main steps that you did to manage the landscape differently that led from, you know, a, a severe deficiency in water to a surplus in, it's only a handful of years as well, right? Yeah, it took three years for the lake to fill up. Uh, but so... You can make these major interventions, which is a water retention feature. And it's important that this isn't a liner, this isn't a concrete dam. This is about creating decentralized water retention where you're finding the natural clay layer within the soil and then using that clay to build up a wall to hold the water within that clay layer. Because the very important part that's happening here is water cycle recharge. So from that project in Tamara, they actually have springs that have come back alive from that lake feature because the lake isn't holding the water like a bottle. It's actually distributing it back into the earth. Wow. So let's go a little bit more into detail about how you can create those water retention landscapes. I've heard of tons of different uh, individual techniques, everything from uh, following contours on key line, either digging swales or using a key line plow, all the way to actually creating lakes, dams, and water retention points, especially in, in valleys. And you talked about doing it by finding that clay layer. Now, I know that you brought in a lot of uh, heavy machinery to do something on, on a large enough scale. And a lot of the questions that I get from listeners and, and people who hire us as consultants is, is how to make those larger water features without doing, like you said, bringing in either uh, cement to seal it off or pond liners. Because clay can be different in every different spot and depending on its purity or its makeup might not work sufficiently to really hold water in for a long period of time. And you bring up a really good point because a really important part of all of this is that we first think about where we are within the landscape and what that part of the landscape really wants. And so there are plenty of areas that I visit where a pond or a large water retention feature is not a viable option because they don't have the right materials. Uh, now that means they're within a different part of the landscape and that they should focus their energy in different directions, whether that's terracing and reestablishing forestry systems or just getting the soils back to a really vibrant, structured and healthy state. Um, there's no there's no one size fits all solution. And so you're really looking at, for example, looking at just building a water retention feature. You need to look at a number of different variables, one being the land shape. Can you move a small amount of earth relatively for a large gain in the watershed of that landscape? Um, and then the second would be the consistency of that earth. Do you have a clay layer to tie into? If you don't, now you need to look at different solutions. Um, if you do, do you have enough clay to build up your dam wall? 
And then you also need to look at the catchment. So how much earth is feeding that point, that collection point, and is that really going to deliver enough water to charge this water body that you're creating? Um, and so you're even within a site, you might find that there's 10 different spots where a pond is possible, but there's two that are much better return on investment. Mm. And so those are the ones you focus on. So how do you start by assessing a landscape for its water harvesting potential? Uh, obviously, every site is different. So being able to observe the site and gather data is going to be your first step. Am I right? Exactly. Exactly. For me, the way that I've trained and learned, I can't tell anything anything about a landscape without seeing it. You can show me all the maps in the world and all the pictures and I can get a rough idea what's there, but without seeing it and smelling it, and there are so many senses that you get from a landscape um, and you really have to tune into what that landscape is offering to you and see what's possible. And if you learn how to read landscape, you can tell from the types of plants that are growing, how deep the water table is, you can tell by the way the soil has been deposited, how much water is moving and how quickly it's moving. Uh, and water does a very good job of sorting material. So as water is eroding, it's carrying with it force and energy. And as it starts to get calm, it starts depositing those particles, starting with the largest and then to the smallest. So first it deposits the gravel, then the sand, then the silt, and then the clay. And so at the right points within the landscape, water has already sorted the material for you, delivering the best material to the spots where most water actually gathers. Um, and so it's, it's important to really tune into the history of the landscape that you can read even in a moment at looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that we've had to do extensively on our own site here in Guatemala um, because we're only on a half an acre and we are in sort of a depository spot in the valley where, where we live in the mountains. And then we have, of course, everything draining out to a large lake and figuring out sort of those, like you said, those layers that build up through erosion events uh, has been key to sort of assessing what could potentially be done without fighting against the landscape, but working with its sort of its natural cycles. Exactly, exactly. And that, that really summarizes up what we're always trying to do very well. And so you want to look at where the landscape is within the larger landscape. And then I also do, whenever possible, geological test slices. So these are test digs done two, three meters deep, sometimes shallower, sometimes deeper, but where I can actually feel all the different material and I take it in my hand and I can say, okay, this is about 60% clay. That means we can use it for X, Y, and Z, or, you know, this is all gravel, sand, and cobble. This isn't going to work for a pond at all. Um, and so very quickly, the landscape provides all the information you need to know what's best to do in that place. Mm, yeah, I mean, those are just invaluable skills, no matter what it is you're trying to do with a landscape. But, you know, as we're talking about bringing water into a site and, and uh, making the best use of it within, you know, any any space or period of land, those are really the the life accelerators. And if you can get your water systems dialed in and, like you said, even producing a surplus, the the effect in the surrounding area can be massive in quite a short amount of time. Do you have some... Uh, examples or some case studies that you could share where that's been achieved. Yeah, and 
you know, I think if you just think about it for a moment, it becomes very clear. Water is life, and that's becoming a trendy thing to say, but 70% of all life is water. And so when you have more water on a site, more life happens as a result. And so once you've addressed the water of a landscape, 70% of the work is done. You're going to grow lush vegetation. Now your goal becomes to direct which kind of lush vegetation you want. Um, and so it, it can create this huge transformation. For example, in India, there's this movement of peasant farmers that have built 11,800 little water retention features. These are just things that they're doing by hand, no machinery, but on a village scale, so lots of people. And this movement of farmers has restored five rivers and 250,000 wells. They've raised the water table six meters in some areas. And these are just by small peasant interventions, but done on a wide scale. Because that's really the thing. It's not about this large centralized water management like is done in so many places now, but it's about decentralized water retention. Uh, and once you put the water back into the earth, the life happens. And so you could look at the lowest plateau as another example an area the size of some countries that was totally transitioned in a relatively short amount of time. Um, and these examples are all over, whether it's in Spain or Portugal or even in the Americas. Um, it doesn't take long once you get the water in the landscape for the life to happen. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's so true. So now you were talking about these small-scale interventions. Let's transition now to talking about some of the actionable steps to improving your own water cycle at maybe different residential levels. So you live in the country or the suburbs or the city. What are some of the most effective sort of reasonable budget and realistic changes that someone could make to the land that they have access to? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the first things to consider here is before we even talk about having a positive impact, we need to look at our current impact. And so in all of these different scenarios, the first thing I would suggest is for people to look into their own relationship with water, how they're managing water in whatever domain they have control of. And so, for example, someone in a more rural setting, they have roads, they have a home, maybe multiple buildings, and then they have whatever areas have been cleared for lawn or pasture. All of these surfaces are creating a lot of runoff. And so before we can, just to get to neutral, we need to start holding water within the landscape. Just to offset the roads and our homes, we should have some water retention. Whether this is a small pond or a little wetland area, or even just an area where you're deliberately just spreading the water out so that it can soak into the landscape. Um, and so there's a lot of opportunity, especially along roads. Anywhere where water is being channelized and concentrated, those are great areas to create a small water retention feature. Even if the material is not so great and it doesn't turn into a year-round pond, you're going to be helping to infiltrate the water that used to infiltrate on that landscape before the structures that were built. Yeah, and if nothing else, reduce the amount of soil erosion runoff and catch that before it leaves your site, right? 
Absolutely, absolutely. And if it's along a steep road or something, you're going to have gravel being deposited there that you can use to repair your potholes. I mean, it's, it's a very useful system. And so trapping the material and the water um, on whatever scale. Now, on a suburban sense, this might just be your home. Maybe you have a rain garden off of your gutters so that all of the roof water or all the rainwater from your roof is soaking into your garden area and it creates a garden that you don't have to water and it again puts that water back into the earth instead of putting it down the road in through the sewer systems and out into whatever body of water is nearby. And as far as vegetation to accomplish the same goals, I know we talked a lot about earthworks and how to sort of structurally readjust a landscape, but root systems and vegetation can also make a huge impact in how much water that a soil body can store, right? Absolutely. Not only how much it can store, but how the water infiltrates into the landscape. So tree root systems actually help move water down as well as up. So in the rain events, they're collecting water and it's running down along the roots. And so, and then the other thing is providing shade and protection for the soil allows more soil life to exist. And that lower temperature allows whatever water enters it to infiltrate a lot better. If you imagine a sponge, when a sponge is dry and hot, the water can't even enter into it. Once it's a little bit moist and cool, it just soaks it right up. And so one of the biggest things people can do is not so much even creating water features, but just creating shaded earth, places where there are trees, where there are a few trees together that are helping drive that water deeper and protect the soil to create a, a healthy living sponge. Now, I've heard that can also be in a really effective way to retain water in a landscape on very steep slopes, where Digging things like swales or other water features can actually become dangerous because if they're in any way destabilized can cause sort of big erosive events down below. In, in, uh, in place of that, you can start to plant like uh, key line rows of trees that allow the soil to infiltrate in without sort of collecting and becoming a potential hazard. Absolutely. And the best way to infiltrate water is to do it a little bit everywhere. And the easiest solutions are oftentimes just to stick a tree in the ground instead of doing these massive earthworks. And a lot of times it would just be as simple as stop mowing your lawn and eventually the trees will actually come back. So we don't even have to do anything. You can do things to speed it up and all of this, but we have to stop doing the things that are creating the broken water cycle, first and foremost. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that's something that I've really kind of in in assessing a lot of projects and working with clients have figured out that, quite frankly, you don't need to make such a concerted effort at building or replacing or, you know, adding on to things. Oftentimes, you can save money and effort just by stopping the destructive practices, uh, which are in many cases, extremely consumptive, especially things like lawn maintenance, right? Oh, exactly. It's time consumptive, energy consumptive, financially consumptive, and there's no benefits. It's just this thing that we feel like we need to do, and people need to start waking up and realizing the greater impact that's that it's having. All right, so if you have access to almost no land, say you live in an apartment or a condo, 
or some area uh, that's quite frankly out of your control, whether you're renting or whatnot, what are some of the things that you can do to impact your own water use? I think there are two big things that I would suggest people in this scenario do. One is actually just composting, taking their organic waste and composting it and turning it into a nice, rich compost that's full of good, healthy life, and then go and bring that compost to whatever patch of green there is around. If there is a tree in the park, if there is an urban garden, whatever that is, that in itself, creating that filter again, is actually going to help a lot. And then the other piece that I would really love to see people in this scenario become more involved in is water policy, civil courage, civil action, becoming a voice for water. People in the cities have access to the various governments, the regulating bodies, the corporations, all of these different organizations that are creating really massive negative changes to the water cycle. And so it's time for city dwellers to stand up and start being a voice for water where water doesn't otherwise have a voice. I completely agree with that. Uh, Oftentimes... (laughs) Affecting things on sort of a systemic scale can be really daunting, especially as people feel increasingly cut off from governmental bodies and policymakers. Can you give us some examples of where those types of shifts have happened? Because I'm of the opinion that simply protesting or showing dissent towards an existing policy is not terribly effective unless you have an alternative or a solution that you can actually advocate for. Well, exactly. And no is not enough. No is never going to create any positive change. Um, And so it is very important to not just have these movements and occupations that are anti, but they're actually pro something. And they very clearly say that so that that message can spread. And so, for example, in New Zealand, a movement of um, indigenous people, the Moldy, granted a river personhood. And so what this did is it made it so that that river has the same rights that a person does. And so people have to treat it with a degree of respect and it removed a lot of pollution and it basically gives a framework with which to regulate. Um, And then there's great movements like in Mexico, there's this community that lives along the river, Halkamoko. And it's a, they've always lived along the river, a fishing community, tourism community. And the government has improved, approved this giant hydropower dam that will kill the river, basically. And for five years going, the people have stopped the dam from being built because every time the contractors come out, everyone in the town goes there with their machetes and stays there until they leave. And they have the area under 24-hour surveillance, all volunteer-run um, and so there are, there are ways that that can be successful, but I think what could be really successful is that we start going to the governments of the world and basically creating a plan that's the res- restoration of the biosystems of the earth as catastrophe mitigation. Everywhere there's problems with flood, problems with drought, problems with fire, and the expenses of these are getting into the billions of dollars. And so it's actually becoming cheaper to regenerate the Earth's biosystems 
than to keep rebuilding after catastrophe. And so even if the government bodies don't care at all about the health of the planet, just from a financial perspective, there's starting to be a very strong case for this movement. Um, and if you look at in the Americas, in North America, at, during the time of the Great Depression, the government created a policy that was the Civilian Conservation Corps that had all of these people going out and terracing landscapes and planting trees and creating erosion mitigation. It employed something like 5 or 10% of the country at one point, um, and it stopped the Dust Bowl. And so there are these good examples of positive movements where, because we do have to move past just this no anti, that's not going to solve anything. We have to actually start presenting the solutions that we want to take the place of those things. Yeah, I profoundly agree with that. Now, I know you've also mentioned when you and I talked before this, that you have a lot of resources that you can point people to in order to learn about more of these topics in depth, especially to find practical information on not only reading landscapes and diagnosing what they're able to do with the land that they have some control over, but the, the different ways that they can affect their own water uh, consumption and interaction and work towards regenerating waterways in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so these are going to be the different people around the world that I think are doing really amazing work with the water cycle. And so Sepp Holzer, my mentor, is a good place to start. There's books, Desert or Paradise, DVD, lots of videos online. Uh, if you just YouTube Sepp Holzer, you'll find a wealth of information on this general approach. Um, another one would be the Flow Partnership. This is an organization working with Rahindra Singh, the movement in India that I mentioned of these peasant farmers that have been restoring whole river systems, huge watersheds. Um, and so the people are seeing really amazing impact there. Willie Smith's work in Borneo is another good example of how forests and the water cycle are linked. And all of these people, there's different TED Talks you can find from them and um if you just search these names, you should be able to find a good bit. Peter Andrews in Australia is another one that, and all of these people are doing the same thing. They're doing decentralized water retention landscapes, creating interventions on the landscape to hold water where water's being collected in the rainy seasons, in the rainy times, um, and really getting incredible results. Yeah, let me just throw in uh, Tom Duncan of Aqua Biofilter there as well. Uh, I'll put in a link to the podcast that I recorded with him from, uh, I think it was two seasons ago now. But his work uh, for floating wetland systems, using plant roots to actually take up toxins and put it into uh, plant bodies has been really inspirational for me as well. All of those resources, I'll make sure to put in the show notes for this. Yeah, and another one along that line would be John Todd as well and his living systems uh, where they just created basically ecological systems that filter and clean water. Yeah, there are increasingly inspiring uh, examples all over the place of people really spearheading these initiatives and getting real work done. Uh, all along those lines, Zach, can you tell us a little bit about your organization and how people can contact you to learn more? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, my organization is Elemental Ecosystems, elementalecosystems.com. 
Um, and through the website's the best way. We've got a lot of content in the works that'll be coming out soon. We've got videos on a YouTube channel, um, and we're constantly updating our website and adding new things. And we've got a lot of a lot of good things coming for 2019. Fantastic. I'm really excited about that. And before I let you go here, I really want to put this out to the audience that you and I have talked a little bit about creating a series out of this topic. Um, and I would love to hear from listeners exactly what sort of format and what kind of questions you would like us to address along these lines. Zach is a wealth of information. And I really want to take this opportunity to go further in depth with uh, water restoration projects, waterway regeneration, uh, harvesting and collecting to re uh, sort of reverse desertification. I'm really interested in some of the nuts and bolts, the action plans and the strategies that you've found to be effective in all of your experience. And yeah, if anybody out there is interested in learning more, please send your questions to info at AbundantEdge.com. I'll also be putting out a couple of surveys on our Facebook page to see what people are most interested in having us cover in depth in some future episodes. So I'm really looking forward to remaining in touch with you, Zach, and to, for exploring some of these topics in more depth. And yeah, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate the work that you're out there doing. And uh, say hi to Cassie for me as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I listen and you do great work. Um, yeah, I'd love to keep keep participating and helping get this information out there. And Cassie, we just started working together recently and she's just doing amazing stuff. So um, it's really going to enable what we're able to get out in the public sphere. That's so great to hear. All right. Uh, again, thanks for taking the time today. We'll be in touch again soon. And don't forget to send in those questions and topic ideas if you're interested in hearing more from Zach. Thanks, bud. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we share. I'm very grateful to all of you who have added comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. And all of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you again in next week's session.